as I talk about like a lot of the mitigation measures that I see, they're just laughable when you look at the reality of feedback loops. Um, yeah, or to or the um, you know the kind of hail mary of putting sulfites into the atmosphere. You know, a bunch of planes every year are going to go up and put a million tons of sulfites into the atmosphere, uh, or we're going to have a breakthrough in carbon capture technology. Uh, we're going to be able to, you know, in place like. Uh, Iceland, which have, uh, have a lot of geothermal energy, we're going to be able to actually pull that carbon out of the air on such a uh, industrial scale in order to actually roll this thing back. But importantly, you know, of course, to be able to maintain the type of economy that we have right now, the type of production that we have right now, the type of consumption that we have right now, and most importantly, the uh, relations of production that we have right now. Right. So even like like in the mainstream discourse, any mitigation whatsoever takes for granted that we're going to continue to have a capitalist ruling class, you know, not right. just of every nation, but globally. And, you know, it, it honestly, it takes for granted, like China's integration into global capital there from every step of this chain from the small to large, um, you see an attempt to maintain the status quo. I mean, even progressive fixes to this assume, for example, the capitalist nation state is a given. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I I hate to tell our Marxist Leninist friends, but uh, the existence of a nation state implies that you still exist in a capitalist form. Um, Because it's controversial. The nation state, the nation state implies a form of private ownership. Um, even if it is a national ownership. Um, and if people don't understand that and they think I'm not being a good, that I'm somehow being an anarchist, I should go back and read uh, Ingalls' critique of the Airfoot program. Um, yeah. But all this, all this, these assumptions are baked into our responses. Um, the responses, however, I think we're going to see a political doubling down as well. And we'll go more to that in the second half of this. But one thing I think is inevitable is uh, nation, national borders and pressures on national borders are going to be hit by this great migration of people that this is going to create. You already see it from North Africa to Europe, from uh, South and Central America to, to, the, Anglo, to the Anglo-American countries, um, and even to Mexico, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, you have seen it... Uh, you what this what which will lead to being that stress as a conservative as a conservatizing factor in us mammalian creatures and this this is where I'm more than just a Marxist I'm also an, you know a person interested in anthropology um, this will lead to a tendency for people who are inclined for a certain kind of belief in nations to double down on those nation states while those borders and existence of those nations become more and more unviable and as my friend Dr. Kuba will say friend he's uh, this might lead to millions of brown bodies at borders, and um, I, I, I would like to not be so dark about that likelihood. Um, and ultimately, the forces of reaction on that do not do not, you know, do, are not likely to win in the long run. But the mm. thing is, everybody can lose in the long run. Mm. So, um, there, there. <laughs> their inability to maintain does not necessarily lead to the left's ability to to come to power are are the working class and we and we should always be careful when we say this because those two things are not 
and increasingly not, if we are honest, despite, you know, DSA rhetoric to the contrary, the same thing. Right. So, yeah, no, I mean, um, you've started, you've seen in the last uh, 10 years or so. Eh, yeah, uh, more longer than that. But uh, there is this there's this extreme reaction uh, by the middle class and by the working class in many cases in the United States uh, towards, uh, you know, a sort of petty bourgeois, uh, small property holding um, reactionary uh, view on these things. Trump is only one sort of expression of that phenomenon, but that makes the the ability to do anything collective and, and large scale that much harder moving forward. Um, you want to talk about Malm? Yeah, let's talk more about Malm. I mean, um, what what does it mean to have really to have for you know in Marxism, there is a distinction that separates it from other forms of socialism early on. One, as Marx actually will say, does in the critique of the Goethe program, despite whatever stupid meme you see on Twitter, that labor is not the sole source of of wealth and, you know, and only a source of abstract value. Mm. And uh, what does that mean? Well, the labor doesn't produce all the world and valuable things that, that you could use for use, you know, for use value, which is when you actually enjoy something. Mm. Um, nature does plenty of it on its own. And Marx was insistent on that point against, you know, uh, a lot of different forms of socialism in his day, both the French and the, Lasallian German variety. Mm. Um, so that's in Marx. But the idea that the natural world could be subsumed to capitalist cycles like this is also implied in Marx and the mm. way he describes the factory systems in England and Das Kapital, but it's not explicitly stated. And Malm kind of draws out that logic. What does it mean for real subsumption to be taking place over the natural yeah. world and the non-human? And, and part of why I love Malm is he brings out some of the heavy, heavy hitters, right? Because this book, Fossil Capital, is a deeply historical text. I mean, it's actually like it's, its basis is trying to do for um, for fossil fuels uh, what mm -hmm. uh, Brenner and Wood did for um, agrarian capitalism uh, and the social relations that arise in England in the 16th, 17th century. So he, it's a deeply historical text. He, he brings uh, forward too, though, he brings, he brings in uh, Moisha Postone and the uh, discussion of um, abstract time and abstract domination through time. And then he, he also, of course, brings in uh, Henri Lefebvre and David Harvey, who talk about abstract space. So it, as much as it's a, it's a deeply historical text about the 1820s and the 1830s and 1840s and the transition really early industrial capitalism and the first industry that first industrializes, of course, which is cotton related weaving, you know, cloth, right? It's this deeply historical argument, but then he's able to actually, I think successfully um, come up with a competing theory for what, um, for, for what is it, what does the transition mean? Not just the transition from feudalism to capitalism, but also the transition for what he calls, um, you know, the, the, the economy of flows, right? Like energy, as energy flows across the, the planet, whether through wind or whether through rivers. I mean, this was the way that people captured energy 
through the entire human history before the 1820s, 1830s. Um, you know, uh, whereas it switches over to what he calls the flow of stocks, right? So being able to go under the earth and take out millions year old deposits of, um, of dead animals and bring them up. What does this transition mean? And, and importantly too, what is there a, um, is there a uh, integral connection between fossil fuel use and capitalist, um, acu and capitalist accumulation? And he answers yes. And I think it's actually very convincing, right? Because his historical argument, let's just throw it out there, right? <clears throat> so there's the Ricardians and the Malthusians, right? Those people still dominate this argument about the transition. The Ricardians who are out there, you know, still today, they argue that basically um, because uh, the, the fuel use of uh, wood, right, in order to heat and in order to, you know, uh, basically to, to heat people's homes, uh, when that starts to run out, when England starts to run out of, um, of arable land, of good land that people can take wood off of and burn, that's when, you know, when the absolute limit is reached to that good land, that's when people start to switch over to coal. So it's like a land mm -hmm. scarcity argument. Whereas the Malthusians who are still out there too argue that uh, once you had population growth, all of a sudden now wood was insufficient to, you know, to heat people's homes or whatever, and you had to move over to coal. Uh, you also have, of course, too, and this is essential in the argument from first natural science and now social science about Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. You also have this Smithian argument that a lot of social theorists will make about this transition to coal, that basically there exists some sort of transhistorical human need, human nature, human desire to burn. Right. It's a homo uh, pyrophilia is what mm -hmm. it's called. Right. That from the first time, 500,000 years ago, when ho when the homo, you know, uh, genus started to use fire in order to clear planes or whatever, that something was baked into human nature, that someday we would start to exploit all this coal, use it in this particular matter, switch over to oil. And that basically there's this is a human endeavor. And so Malm comes in with the Marxist argument, right, which is to historicize this transition and historicize it within a, uh, a, 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 a concomitant rise of capitalist social relations. And he does this by looking at uh, weaving, uh, looking at cloth and, uh, and yarn production uh, mm -hmm. in the place where it's industrialized in the first time, which is Lancashire, uh, which is parts of Scotland, right? And he looks at this very Ricardian argument that says that um, all the good streams have been taken away, right? Like the good land that you could, you know, put up a water mill on or the good, um, good hilltop that you could put a windmill up. All those have been gone. And so capitalists, early capitalists reached this point where they needed to start using coal because it was a, you know, it was, it was economically necessary. And Malm actually looks at the history of it and there, the wind water power up until the 1820s and 1830s was more than sufficient to do all the production necessary under those conditions. Um, what became a problem, however, was that once a capitalist, you know, in Lancashire in the 1820s and the 1830s, once he set that water mill down and started to attach to it all the machines and get workers to come and work in it, right? You had all these different um, shops, right? Uh, uh, real, really subsumed shops all over the place where uh, basically because they were stuck in that one place on that source of energy right there, the workers in this particular place had a lot of power in order mm -hmm. to control the conditions of their labor and to demand more in uh, wages.
So Which is uh, something we see in mining for people. One example of this mm -hmm. today and something you can actually see like like miners have a mining unions and whatnot are particularly strong outside of Appalachia and whatnot. Um, even today, even though some of them are kind of reactionary, but they control a like you go meet a miner today and they they might pull 100K a year for a worker, you know, without a degree or any credentialization or any other forms of rents because of what you're talking about because yeah. of their specific placement in in the circuit of production you can't and, mine elsewhere right yeah. obviously i mean there are other mines you go to but uh in terms of where the actual deposits are there's almost like a natural monopoly of the local workers in that place Bingo. in order to be able to you know there's basically a scarcity right so when the great crisis comes the panic of uh, 1828 was it when the mm -hmm. great panic comes there's this the, the first structural crisis of industrial capitalism like in world history happens you have a massive uh, overaccumulation you have um the technology of the steam engine that's kind of sitting there and P and capitalists are like trying to to you know slot it in here and there but it's way 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 more expensive to cart coal from like 50 or a hundred miles away and bring it in and have this sort of constant cost, you know, of mm -hmm. like this labor produced commodity coal uh, in order to, to, uh, to run these engines than it is to simply put a giant water wheel. And they became water wheels became so super large and efficient that like they were getting a ton of productivity out of this, but it's when a combination of this first crisis of cap crisis of over accumulation of capital happens when, um, massive monopolization happens but also when workers for the first time with the uh, repeal of the combination act in the 1830s are able to legally form unions a mm -hmm. mass wave of class struggle breaks out in the 1830s and malm shows i think very successfully uh using sometimes even like the uh the quotations from the capitalists at that time that the advantage of coal over water power was not economic it was directly political because what coal allowed you to do, it was more expensive at this time, and it was getting pretty efficient, right? But what it allowed you to do was to move these shops from isolated villages where workers were winning and demanding and winning, uh, not just conditions, but also, of course, wages. It allowed you to move it to an urban agglomeration where there was a large reserve army of labor so that whatever workers came in could be disciplined by the capitalists and they could have control over production and, and yep. of course, too, over the price of labor. So it's a directly political and this changes the entire picture of things. Right. There's not simply some blind economic process. I mean, it is in a certain way. Right. But it is about, in this instance, the domination of labor by capital through, importantly, the ability of capital to move. Right. Right. Capital in its purely liquid form, capital in its money form, right, is about as liquid as it can possibly be. Right. It can move anywhere. You know, you can you can be in London and you could be investing in railroads in India uh, or in the United States. But capital in its fixed form, you know, in its constant capital form. Right. If that is that remains in one place, of course, we see what the effects are in the 1820s, and the 1830s. So the ability of capital to flee and find cheaper workers to find higher productivity, a higher rate of exploitation anyways, right, becomes this essential feature of the coal economy. And Malm argues that it's an essential feature of capital itself, because when we go way forward in time to the last 20 or 30 years, what is the explosion of emissions? And you mentioned this before, 80% of them being from 1970. What does that represent? That represents the globalization of commodity production. 
and the movement yeah. of all these goods and all this production all over the world because you because capital in a structural crisis in the 1970s and 80s needed to find a place to move Bingo. in order to return profitability and fossil fuel fuels allow that in a way that no other form of energy production possibly could this is why we should never talk about politics purely as as part of the superstructure of society because politics is partly about the the relations of production and the management of those relations and that management enables national capital to move to transnational capital to move to global capital and and those steps are actually not insignificant i mean cuz capital's been transnational since the british empire but it also changes all sorts of things like this shift for example, causes the world to stop looking like uh, the world that Lenin describes in the, in, in the kinds of uh, imperial crises, but to the world that Kalski and Hobson mm. described. Um, that's all tied in together. And which means when you look at something like Fossil Capital, and it's an interesting book because I agree I agree that it's political, although it, it, we really need to emphasize the politics of this is about the politics of of relations of production. Yeah, it is not a purely like this was politically determined by policy in the way that like right. that's important. you might hear yeah. left liberal progressives throw around today. That's not what this book is trying to right. say, but you can't remove politics from relations of production. Right. Just like like you, there's no way to to regulate capital without the nation state or without transnational agreements because the na the nation state you know manages uh co contradictory elements within a na within a singular polity's capitalist base but it also does another thing is is it creates the conditions for for a market mm -hmm. and for the movement of both goods and labor within that market right and again these are all basic marxist points that i think are kind of dropped out mm. and so you know, um, historically, actually, in the codification of historical and dialectic materialism under Stalin in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, uh, relations of production are are almost completely factored out of historical materialism for um, for modes of production and for productive forces. Yeah. Um, you you have I mean this is another one of Malv's great arguments and I kind of implicitly knew this but he really makes it clear is that um, Marx in the Poverty of Philosophy in 1844 talks about the, the paraphrase of course is that like the an economy of water mills gives you a, a, a feudal landlord and the politics of a steam engine gives you the the capitalist right mm -hmm. so that there's basically like forces of production lead to particular relations of production. And this becomes codified, right? Even though this is early Marx, this becomes codified. But then if you look at capital, Marx is actually finding all uh, capital volumes one, two, and three. Marx is finding all sorts of evidence historically that he's actually pointing out and bringing into the story of how instead of the forces of relation determining the forces of production, determining the relations of production, it's actually the opposite often, right? Mm -hmm. On a grand structural scale. So the first argument is like an economistic argument. The second is a constructivist argument, right? But that economistic argument ends up getting pulled in partially, largely through Engels' fault, right? As like this vulgarizer simplifier of Marxist, Marx, uh, and it becomes the dogma of the second and the third internationals. 
And right. so you have this, this complete refusal, as you said, to look at the actual relations of production and how, you know, they, they, they basically like, like capitalist power, the incentives of the capitalists leads to particular outcomes. Like for example, using steam engines instead of water power, right? That is right. a direct, direct example there of seeing the relations of production, this newly proletarianized population of workers finally becoming a class in you know for itself right in the 1820s and the capitalist class also becoming a class for itself as well meeting this with a determined economic solution which is to shift around the energy base of their production in order to smash workers power and right. become mobile and let us be honest and, I, and this is where the black pill really comes in um this has profound implications for things like using MMT, uh, you know, modern monetary fixes, uh, to fund something like the Green New Deal, to to do whatever. Um, I keep on pointing it out because these arguments also do not factor in relations of production. I always would say, you know, you think that by saying that the rich don't have to pay for this, that we can finance it off of the actual productive capacity of our economy through through monetary printing heating up liquidity now for people who don't understand modern monetary theory this is just like a bunch of nonsense but basically the argument is um there's no there is no real relation um between uh currency and and um and productive capacity and that currency is not finite like there's not a set amount of it out there, um, so that the actual thing that causes inflation or whatever in your economy is the limit of productive capacity, mm. right? That's actually the MMT argument. They don't phrase it that way. Um, and what that means is, until you hit productive capacity, you can um, solve social problems by increasing liquidity and creating more movement in the economy. And by creating more movement in the economy, you encourage more economic activity. By encouraging more economic activity, uh, you stimulate spending. This is actually um, implied in the early answers of of, of J. A. Hobson, who I mentioned earlier, mm. in his answer to how you could get out of the imperialist problem. Mm. Um, the the reason why Mom's book is is, is interesting for that. And thinking about these uh, rela relations of production is interesting for that. Is that that implies, though, that if capitalists don't have to pay for it in currency, that they're perfectly willing to give up their power over workers uh, because it would stabilize. And, and there are maybe certain powers they are willing to give up. Mm. But but to me, this is nonsense. Mm. Like, like the like, even You've if you've seen how much they fucking whined over the last what six to eight months because finally there's like becoming a scarcity of uh like the reserve army of labor is is, is being like uh you know emptied out in the united states and there's finally some scarcity and they have to pay fucking decent wages to people serving in their in the right. small and, businesses and then they're undercutting it i mean there's a variety of things causing this inflation i should not say that it's yeah. a capitalist plot but it's not the, the wages are not even really rising if you look at like like four percent wage gains for, for for I mean yes the wages have gone up in certain areas a lot but in aggregate for the entire economy it's four percent wage gains mostly actually at the lower end for a change of economic activity inflation's at seven percent 
Look, look, let's just say it flat out again. There's an economic aspect to this, of course. Small businesses being squeezed within the lockdown and all of the, the chaos that happens. But behind that, and a big part of this, this anger on the part of the petty bourgeoisie and the and the haute bourgeoisie is the same political problem, this control and this that's this control over workers, control over labor, uh, their ability to discipline workers. You know, and, and basically have a, a free reign, not just on wages, but also on conditions. It's directly political as well. Exactly. And and so when you when you ask yourself this in a very real sense, right? Um, why won't anyone? Why won't anyone do the uh, MMT employer of last resort? Well, because even more than like unionization, if everybody was guaranteed a job at above what we would consider minimum wage by the federal government, workers could negate working. Are okay. really I mean they could they could go to the minimum the, the, the minimum job if the conditions were shitty. And there's no way that, that capitalist powers are going to give that up. That's not it's not about income. That's what people misunderstand. It's about relations of power. They're also not going to give up their ability to use this to set um you know, different kinds of economic policies by controlling uh, legislatures and whatnot. So even if you assume that, and and there's other complications to this MMT, because I would basically argue it's only possible in the imperial core anyway. Mm -hmm. But even if you assume this, um, this also indicates that certain things like the Green New Deal uh, could only be funded this way if it was not in danger to global capitalist relations, but it is a danger to global capitalist mm. relations. There's yeah. no way for it not to be. In, um, in a very specific way I can get into. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so then, so the Malm does the amazing trick too. Is he? Well, he, he looks at, it, he's like, well, this is in the best interests of like all humans, <laughs> you know, to solve this problem, to collectively come together and do that. Is there some sort of, deep historical structural reason why capitalists can't consent or refuse to consent to having essentially energy production be centrally planned because that's what that's what's called for at this point in time you wouldn't even have to have communism per se but there are all sorts of projects that even you know capitalist nation states have argued for like putting huge arrays of uh, solar panels in north africa in the desert with giant, huge transmission lines and running them up to Europe, not to a particular country, but running them up into improved power grids in Europe and basically taking all the local power sources that are coal, you know, maybe there's some nuclear, but oil, gas, uh, produce energy and, and running those down pretty quickly and replacing that all with renewable solar energy. Well, the problem with that is a problem that, again, goes back to the 1820s and the 1830s. Uh, prior to capitalists, uh, capitalism and capitalist social relations, um, like all through pre-capitalist history, if you look at the, um, the exploitation of energy flows, say in the Nile Delta, or even if you look at it in the early United States, uh, like the, the use of water mills and windmills in the early U.S. or in Europe, right? There's something, there's something that lends that type of power source to communal and collective uh, exploitation. Right. It lends. So if you have if you have water and there's a big problem out west in the United States, water is this is this power, but it's also this finite one. And if I piss in the stream above your drinking water, all of a sudden you have a real problem 
And something needs to be collectively done about that. So in pre-capitalist societies, you had very advanced communal ways, not even through governments per se, but through elders and various community ways to ensure that water was shared collectively, water right. power and also access to it. The, uh, the work of the non-Marxist economist Ostrom actually was based on this and also proved, for example, that the tragedy of commons is bullshit. Yeah, but go ahead. It's it's ideological, really. It's worse right. than bullshit. It's ideology. Um, <laughs> but no, but but then if you go back to our to our kind of formative period in industrial capitalism and the rise of uh, sort of competitive pressures among various capitalists accumulating and, and fighting each other for market share and for efficiencies, what you start to see is that these sort of communal ways of dealing with this resource breakdown, and they've broken down repeatedly through capitalist history because. And again, this is like that this weird political economic thing that we keep going back to It's because using like one's a capitalist access to a particularly powerful and his neighbor's uh, access to a particularly less powerful or cheap energy source is a lever of competition they can use to smash their enemy. And so you see, you can never get capitalists to agree on this. You haven't since the 1820s or 1830s for some sort of collective central plan in order to share that energy, because part of capitalism, of course, is that they're constantly competing with one another and they refuse to all be set on the same conditions, you know, when it comes to that energy exploitation. And so you see this back then and you see it today, the idea of central planning, say in the green new deal, or whether we're talking about giant, massive, um, you know, solar arrays in North Africa shares the sh- scares the shit out of the capitalist class because all of a sudden now you have this equalization of what is a realm of competition, intense competition, in order to say move to China where there's massive coal deposits and there's no EPA. You know, in the last twenty or thirty years, it's been a massive boom to capital, and they want to keep that right that lever. You know, and I think what we'll see is like yes, China will will China has a stronger state capital sector and i use that term advisedly so it can push back more but there's a real limit to how much it can push back and still deliver the middle class economy which a large portion of the chinese even if it's you know not a majority of the economy demand from Mm -hmm. the uh, furthermore china is totally integrated into the capital system now Mm -hmm. and and we'll also be looking to do this uh and and other places of the world um this will lead to all kinds of problems. Um, and just looking at the cone, that's mostly the, the little, the, the cone of effect really um, where climate change is going to hit the hardest around the equator. The idea that China is going to be able to both handle its own economic problems, deal with climate changes impinges on itself and also deal with climate change while we in the West can't do, can't coordinate anything. is a laughable proposition when likelihood, you know, part of Shanghai would be underwater by 2050. Right. I mean, there's just, there, there, we really do have to look at that in a realistic uh, a prospect. And the mound book's great for that. I also think though, that this has some profoundly disturbing effects because the capitalists won't, despite not being able, you know, they basically put themselves in a prisoner's dilemma. Mm-hmm. Um, but despite this, um, uh, the pressures of capital to deal with this, and it will eventually have to 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 survive, um, although not in a way that's going to save you know probably majority of the population of the world, um, uh, will be to do increasingly weird things as you know to kind of handle this problem. I mean, mm-hmm. 
uh, one of the things is what we see now in the United States is the petite bourgeois and what is commonly, you know, my, my friend J.G. Michaels uses the term resource intensive, but I actually use the term commodity producing because that's really what it is. Mm. Cap, uh, low, low profit margin to almost no profit margin, commodity producing things, which is what you see in the Sun Belt mm. um, versus finance capital tech capital and things that are that are technically speaking not dealing with commodities in the marxist sense but are forms of either rent seeking or ip which is government grant of monopoly so republicans um, versus democrats yeah it's exactly <laughs> what you're seeing yeah you're, you're seeing two yeah. you, you, like it's it's not just factions of capital i can tell you the specific factions and then why different parts of the working class are the other you know the other you know, weird hybrid class formations, like when we talk about professors or managers or whatever, uh, are going to side up on one side of that or the other. Mm -hmm. That is perfectly explanatory of both general U.S. politics and of uh, the response to climate change. Um, and you will also see weird allegiances form out of that because, for example, certain capital or capital intensive or commodity producing industries are going to be more affected by climate change than others. And you will see them start to shift their agenda from maybe the G GOP to the progressive or push their GOP on this one issue to be at odds with other elements of the GOP on it. Mm -hmm. So when you take this kind of systemic material perspective and don't just look at forces of production don't just look at modes of production but look at relations of production as part of the base not part of the superstructure yep. you will see that we are in for more political instability a bunch of weird kinds of 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 responses to climate we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about the book climate leviathan at the end of the show today yeah but um there's also going to be all these knock-on effects that that like um border instability we already see that uh increased geopolitical tensions but ironically less likely for imperialist powers to directly go to war unless unless someone fucks up mm -hmm. and uh if i'm going to predict for example yeah and i want to predict <laughs> someone fucking up actually being around russia because russia is of the major military imperial powers the least integrated into the global economy and the least developed. So um, uh, India is pretty integrated. China's extremely integrated, despite, you know, it's general siding with Russia on things to offset the United States. It, it's, it's a much more predictable actor. If tensions really ramp up with the United States, for example, Xi will all of a sudden pivot and start talking about mutual, you know, mutual assistance and mutual yeah. respect and all that. You will see, it's like almost clockwork. Like, you know, the tensions useful for China uh, domestically to a certain point, but I don't, mm -hmm. if it actually risks war, you'll see it be down back down yeah. with, with, with Russia, because Russia is not as integrated in the global capital because it's got an economy, basically just a little bit better than Italy, but it has a military that far outstrips what you would predict from that economy. And it's 800, 800 billion American dollars worth of reserves. And right on just in case like real sanctions on its gas uh export to um to europe were to come into place right exactly so it's an it's 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 actually in a position to be to operate imperially in an older style more akin to what lenin would say in the united states um 
is trying to balance out different factors in its military industrial complex because we, the, you know, um, the military, if we're completely honest, is the core of our society after the bourgeoisie. Mm. Um, why? It's what we spend the most money on. Why do we spend the most money on it? To stabilize trade productions. It's not even for a direct extraction empire anymore. It's just to stabilize state productions yeah. and protect the dollar. Military, military Keynesianism. Right. So, so well, when you look at that, yeah, I'm not super optimistic about uh, what climate's going to do to these political formations either, because yeah. and that's, we're let me in add, constant crisis mode. Yeah, and let me add one more element to that crisis, and I think you've seen this. I think COVID is actually, in a, in a way, uh, an example of this, but uh, going back to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, and then going back mm-hmm. to um, Hurricane Sandy in the in New York, and then to Hurricane uh, Katrina, famously uh, in New Orleans. You know, each time one of these major disasters hits, and we all know that these disasters are going to become far more likely, especially if we lose the Doomsday Glacier and all of a sudden um, in, in in West Antarctica and sea levels rise, uh, you know, two feet suddenly. Each time this yeah. happens, it puts the state under more pressure. And the United States has nearly limitless reserves with the global reserve currency. But we've seen the state fail over and over again, or at least right. make particular types of political choices, disaster capitalist choices uh, that all that that ultimately like lead to not just massive destruction and loss of life, but also, you know, a, a, a taxing of and the, of the legitimacy of the state. Right. And we also should look at national currency flows for this to be helpful too. over the past decade, despite the fact that China's economy uh, is from its perspective, not from ours, it seems amazingly agile from our perspective but from its perspective has been slowing for 20 years uh the 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 proportion of global currency in trade that um that is of chinese yuan stock despite the fact it's not despite the fact it's not uh a free-floating currency like the the uk and u.s reserve currencies um is about 33 percent so those are non-dollar denominated transactions, right? Non-dollar denominated transaction and and renminbi are are yuan. Uh, so it, it you um, what you have there increasingly. Um, China doesn't want to be a world reserve currency; it's not setting itself up for that. But what you have there is increasingly you don't have to trade in dollars or pounds, even though banks uh, and I've lived in a country that. You know, I lived in Egypt when this happened, when they flew for the currency, they were scrounging around for this and it caused massive, it caused hyperinflation. Mm. Um, uh, but in general, um, that's going to, that puts pressure for the U.S. to reassert itself militarily and also to do so without caring about the, the ecological consequences mm. thereof. Mm. And so while yes occasionally the military will try to greenwash something it's also a major polluter huge polluter yeah um so with all that said like every immediate incentive for capital or capitalist nation states because we need to be clear on this they're not exactly the same there's not one to one relation but they mm-hmm. are definitely you know the capitalist nation state can kind of tell certain sectors of capital what to do the state capitalist nation state like China can even maybe execute a few capitalists publicly to keep mm-hmm. them in line, but they can't tell capital as a whole what to do. Right. 
And that's why for our next diving into the wreckage, I think you and me should tackle the China question. I watched yeah. your great episode with, uh, what's his name, Olander, the guy yeah. from China. Really, really good stuff. And I've been reading a lot uh, about China. And I think you and me, maybe next one, should should dive into it. What is China? You know, what are the politics? What is the economy? Make a lot of dungus real mad, maybe. A lot of MLs yeah. too, and probably Marxists. But yeah, I think it's yeah. probably time for that if you're down. I'm definitely down. It's something right. I think a lot about because uh, as a side note, unrelated to climate change, I am both tired of liberal anti-Chinese sentiment and tired of leftists making promises about China that there's no empirical backing for there's the, the uh, internal Chinese documents don't indicate it. What, what China's doing with, with uh, the belt and road initiative are in Africa doesn't indicate it. Um, these things are things that you, you you have to go on. And what most people do to defend China is basically say, well, it's not an imperialist like the U.S. or the West is. And and, and so in and, and, and many ways, they're absolutely right. That doesn't mean shit, though, as far as like its relationship to socialism, yeah. our likeliness to be great for world development are, are just the daddy G will save us. Uh, G will save us line that you basically see on Twitter these days. Yeah. And, and, and to relate this back to our forces versus relations of production argument, I think it was in the 12th party Congress in the 1980s um, class struggle as the motor of history was officially downgraded. And it, uh, instead, you know, the, the aim and goal of the party and the state was to create something called socialist civilization. Right. Of course, and, and by, that's what... by drawing capital in, but it's now it's a developmentalist project. It's one about building the forces of production. It's... Presumably the relations of production will come later because that's the same thing. You know, po the, the poverty of philosophy, two angles to the second to the third international. These things are still with us. Now.